It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am really looking forward to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Brant Cooper, New York Times bestselling author of The Lean Entrepreneur, How Visionaries Create Products, Innovate New Ventures with New Ventures and Disrupt Markets. He's the founder and CEO of Moves the Needle, uh, keynote speaker. Brant, welcome to Accelerate. Andy, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So, may take a minute and introduce yourself. Sorry, how'd you get into business initially, but then how'd you get into the whole lean entrepreneur side of things? Yeah, sure. I have a background in, in startups, so I was kind of lived through the dot-com boom and bust and you know, lived through some successes and some mediocre startups <laughs> and some massive failures even. So, me, me too. I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've, we'll compare stories on the massive <laughs> failures. Right. So there was a bunch of independent efforts after the bust where people were sort of questioning why are we why are we building startups as if they're like big businesses, which, you know, sort of the whole concept of write a business plan, plan what you're going to do, and then simply execute on that business plan, and voila, you're going to, you know, have all of the success. And, and, uh, and of course, all of those that, that went through the bust part of it learned pretty quickly that, you know, the business plan, as Steve Blank likes to say is, you know, a, a great work of fiction. And uh, so, you know, I, I launched a marketing service called Sales and Marketing R&D, and it was to try to bring the engineering rigor over to the sales and marketing side of the house. So instead of just believing that we know what products to build, what features to add, how to market, and how to sell, how to sell, we should go out and learn first to take an iterative approach towards all of the functions inside of a business, you know, across the business, throughout the business model. And so I was blogging about that in the mid-2000s, 2007, I guess, 2008, and somebody turned me on to Steve Blank, who had written uh, or compiled a bunch of lecture notes called The, the Four Steps to the Epiphany, and he kind of laid out what he thought the practices were of successful startups, those that had achieved scale and, and went public or were, were acquired, but achieved the scale based upon this method of learning first and then executing. And that was right when Eric Reese was uh, blogging about the lean startup. And so there was, again, a small group of us that were working on this stuff and, and trying it out and practicing and, and trying to do it with startups. And I wrote the book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Custom Development, that sort of summarized these practices and that took off and suddenly I was in this, you know, lean startup world. And Eric, Eric Reese's book, uh, The Lean Startup, really took it mainstream. So corporate America started reading about this stuff. So ironically, now it's not that we, not only do we not teach startups how to act like big businesses, we, we are teaching big businesses how to act more like startups in particular parts of their business so that they can also learn before they execute when trying new endeavors. And so that's what Moves the Needle does, and, and that's where I, I find myself. Right. So Moves the Needle from an innovation standpoint. 
Right. So moves the needle is really, and, and actually more than innovation. So if we define innovation as something new that creates new value and forget for a moment the, you know, oh, is it sustaining and incremental versus disruptive or breakthrough, but just trying to create something new that creates value, that being innovation, we teach that all across the company. So all people should be learning these entrepreneurial skill sets because everybody has a customer. Um, and so we, we don't really know where innovation is going to come from. So you're better off rather than choosing a few, hey, you go be our innovators, teach everybody these practices and you'll find uh, new ways to invent processes inside your business or new parts of the business model that might lead to uh, you know new markets or new growth rather than just relying on, oh, I'm going to go create some disruptive technology in some lab somewhere. Well, which I think is a really critical distinction is that people tend to think about innovation from a product or service standpoint and not about a process or you know, a business model standpoint. Right. So, you know, if you look at successful startups over, you know, if you go back as far as, as Amazon, for example, you can see that innovation actually has happened in distribution or innovation can be in marketing itself. Or as you know, you're very familiar with, innovation can be in how you go and sell to a company. And so if the salesperson is creating new value for the client, then you have uh, sort of launched a new marketing channel that may or a new channel in, in getting to the customer that may result in revenue that's, that's independent of the utility of the product that you're selling. And could be a huge extension to it, right? Exactly. So, so let's talk about innovation in the context of business-to-business sales, because a lot of what you've written about and stuff I've your book and content I've read on your website, even though not specifically addressing sales, it certainly it does speak to it. And it seems like things you talk about, like you know, see urgent op- opportunities and take it upon yourself to make things happen. Now, it seems like that would logically be something every sales rep should aspire to, right? That we see an urgent opportunity and we take it upon ourselves to make it happen. But they seem to be constrained, it seems like, in so many organizations. I presume you see this at the enterprise level. Right. So this is, this is true uh, you know, across all of the silos inside the large enterprise. And, and so when we, we, inevitably, when we talk to large organizations about this, the ones that we work with are the ones that are willing to really, you know, from a C-suite down, actively break down silos and actively look at even structuring teams in a different way. And so from my perspective, uh, if you look at all of the individual silos, many of them have become more customer focused. So a, a good salesperson, you know, whether you call them a renaissance salesperson or a consultative salesperson, has to look at things from the customer's perspective. You have to be creating value or you have no relationship. And the same thing goes with you know, marketing content and, and, and positioning and, and all of that sort of thing. And of course, the same thing goes with developing a product and, and you know, there's a lot of customer journey mapping and, and all that sort of thing and the rise of, you know, user experience design. But the problem is, as long as those things still exist in the silo, you're still missing opportunities for growth. You're, you're maybe even missing where the customer is missed where the customer is the most frustrated. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I try to look at it as, well, what, holistically, what is the customer journey from them first becoming aware of a product all the way to becoming passionate about the product 
And inevitably, if, if that's not like one journey that needs to be connected, it doesn't work very well if, if different aspects of that journey are, are, have to go up and down the hierarchy of silos and across the whole company to be accomplished. And so you start getting into things like structure around cross-functional teams and, and really getting sales to work with marketing, with product, with distribution, you know, with support, that, that, that that's the way that people need to look at their relationship with their customers, this holistic journey. Well, and so one of the issues, obviously, when you start talking about that, I imagine as you get into it, is that sales likes to be in charge. <laughs> they like to own that, that, that yep. relationship. And, yep. and what you're talking about is something that really challenges that in a sort of a fundamental way. Right. So it is one of the one of the barriers to our innovation work inside a large enterprise is tip in the B2B environment is typically the salespeople say, no, you can't go and talk to the customers, you can't run experiments, you can't do this or that because I own the relationship. And uh and so they're they're fearful that that relationship will be hurt. And it's a it's a valid concern, right? If you're a large successful enterprise that sales rep is responsible for significant, significant amounts of revenue to the company, and they have very aggressive numbers that they must hit. And so part of it is that the innovators have to recognize that the core assets of the existing company must be protected. And so that's like, you know, to me, ground rule number one, and can I put the, the salespeople, the account managers at ease if that's the first thing I say is like, no, your core assets must be protected fundamentally. So then, then we get into the process of, so how do we get to yes? How do we get to the point where you will allow us to contact some of your accounts in order to ensure that what we're creating in the future is going to provide value and that it's going to provide such significant value that you as the sales rep, you as the account manager, are going to be happy about it, are going to be tickled, are going to benefit themselves from it. Or alternatively, if we don't provide it, you're going to lose the account. Right, right. I mean, so that's the... the, To your point, right? If you don't inspire the customer to change their status quo, someone else is going to come along and do it. Right, exactly right. And I'll add that inevitably, the, 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 the high quality salespeople that I am working with I can ask a simple question. Who are your early adopters? Who are the ones that want to know what's being worked on? Who are the ones that want to see, you know, behind the curtain about what's going on? And so those early adopters uh, that the account people are, you know, well aware of who they are, then then they can actually plant the seed and, and form those relationships with the innovation team or the product team or whatever so that now those uh, those customers are the ones that get to see the behind the scenes. They get to be involved, get to co-develop the new products. And then that, again, it strengthens the relationship. Yeah, I mean, that whole co-creation of value is, I think, really the one of the driving trends in business-to-business sales. And you sort of spoke to it directly, right? I mean, if you're not, if you're not uh, working hand-in-glove with the customer, to say, okay, what their needs are, and this is what we're going to do some experiments and learn together to see what's the best approach or the best solution for you, then, yeah, someone else is going to swoop in and get that business because they're going to work with the customer that way because that's the way the customers want to work. It's the way the customers want to work, and it's, it's certainly just the way the world operates now. And, and, you know, one of the things I talk about often is 
you know, increased competition. And it's not just from very well-funded startups. It's from, uh, it's from other enterprise companies that are looking for new markets. It's the fact that we're global now. So these competitors can be coming in, you know, internationally. And it's even, you know, this, these scary last generation tech companies. I mean, do we really know what Amazon's going to do next or what Google's going to do next or what markets Apple is going to go into or Amazon where we have, you know, we have, Uber for cars, obviously, but we have Uber for helicopters, Uber for food. You know, what's next? Uber for life insurance? I mean, why not? We don't know where the competition is coming from. So the relationship that we have with our existing clients needs to be tighter and it needs to be that we're co-creating and understanding deeply all of the concerns and aspirations that, that our customers have. Well, let's talk about your three E's of innovation and sort of create a context and then come back in and talk about some of this stuff. Sure, yeah. So uh, three E's of, of lean innovation. Empathy, understanding our customers deeply. Experiments, so we're going to run purpose-built experiments based upon hy- hypotheses in order to either validate or invalidate our riskiest assumptions. And evidence, so evidence-informed decision-making. I really don't like the phrase uh, uh, evidence-based, as if the the evidence, the data, is the only it's thing good. that's right, or it's conclusive, right? right? Exactly right. And right. so, you know, our knowledge, our experience, our intuition is super important. But you have to take in it. You you want to look at the the data. You want to learn insights. So that's part of my evidence too. Is that you're getting insights from the market. And, and so that what we're trying to do is, is not make decisions based upon the highest paid person in the room or, the, or our own egos or our own you know, emotions, our own fears. And that's how the data helps inform those decisions. But those are the three E's, empathy, experiments, and evidence. So empathy, let's start with that. Does, you know, building a relationship with your, your customer that where you're really – we hate to say you're customer-centric because it's you know, a term that's been around for so long. But, but so few people really do it well. It's, it's your, you're spending time with them really understanding what it is that's important to them. Right. So you know, it's one of those things you're, that – You're not selling, in other words. Right. You're, you're not – Right. You're not selling. You're not hugging them either. So, you, you know, empathy doesn't mean that you have to go hug all your customers. I mean, unless that's, you know, where the relationship goes, that's fine. But <laughs> it's really, it's not doing what the customer says, right? So that's a key component. It's understanding why the customers are saying what they're saying. So, you know, when people are creating and trying to sell new products, we know often that the customer doesn't understand why they need the product or, they, they don't understand the context or the new technology. And so it's not simply going and doing what the, the customer says, but understanding why they say what they say. One of the companies that we worked with had a, uh, uh, a, uh, a manufacturing monitoring tool that, uh, that they, they assumed that the customer was installing it properly. As a matter of fact, they did interviews where they would say, the, the customers would say nine out of ten said, yeah, we are, we're installing this in our factory floor correctly. But it wasn't until a combination of sales and engineering went out to the factories and, and looked and watched the, the installation that they realized that their customers were in fact installing it wrong. And that's why they were not getting all of the benefit that they hoped from the product. So that's the customer's, not the customer's responsibility to know that or to understand that or make the product simple enough to install. It's the company's responsibility. And so the company revamped the software to start with, you know, just big, big lights. It's green, yellow, red. Yeah. You know, it's green when it's installed correctly. 
But it's one of those things that you only can understand when you're out there on the factory floor and you're seeing people trying to interact with your with your product. And so that's an example of empathy. It's understanding them, their, their, them and their situation and their environment deeply. And it's also understanding what their aspirations uh, are. You know, I used to try to sell product into a, a IT organizations where there was an 800-pound gorilla, and the 800-pound gorilla could simply go to the, the client and say, really, you're going to let this startup forklift these products out of your, your IT center and put in this new stuff? You know, and the IT manager's going, holy crap, there's no way. I, I'll lose my job if something goes wrong, right? Fear, well, so, let's see. Let's guess who was doing that. Fear, <laughs> uncertainty, doubt. Okay. Well, and I think one of the things when you're talking about the empathy, and a, a phrase I like salespeople in the audience really listening in to, to hear is that you, you need to learn how to listen without judgment. Right? right. If you're a salesperson, you know, even take your manufacturing floor example is, is how many interactions that the sales rep had with the customer where this was going on but they, they had their filters up, right? Or they were thinking about what their own agenda was and not what the customer's was. Yep. And so instead of asking the questions, and said, bringing their biases down and their filters down, just listening completely, being present, you know, the mindfulness we're talking about here, really essential in developing that empathy. Right. And I, I think that there's, you know, uh, frankly, there's different modes that, that a person can be in. There are times when it's right to, to you know, be you're overcoming objections and you're um, providing the technical uh, specs and you're doing these other things that need to be done in that sales moment. And so I guess I think that part of it is to be able to s- distinguish when am I in selling mode and when am I in relationship mode? When am I in, and maybe, maybe you'll correct me. Maybe that's not the right way to look at it, but when are you, when are you in listening? And, and, and it always. could be, yeah, you're always in listening. Yeah. I mean, to me, one that, Issues and innovation that we're, you know, I keep trying to push is that, you know, talk less, listen more. Right. Because if you really are asking the right questions and you're listening without thinking about the next thing you're going to say, customer's going to tell you something really important. But you have well, to I, you have to hear yeah. it. You got to be in a mode to hear it. So I, I'm sure I'm sure you and and, and most of your audiences heard the flipping the conversation. Uh, you know, method, and, and I talk about this a lot in my books, and, and it's mostly because everybody inside the company needs to be able to learn this. But it's basically, you know, introducing yourself and then stating two or three problems that you think that your client has, and then you just toss it to them. Do you have these problems? And to me, it's a great way to get going with, you know, these open-ended questions. And what is the client going to say? Yes, I have those problems. You nailed them exactly. Let's talk about it. Yes, I kind of have these problems, but my big problem is over here, and maybe it's something that you can address or, or maybe not, but it's going to tell you what the priority of your client is with you know, what you do have, or nope, I don't really have those problems, and really, that's a, that's a big, big fat no that is, I'd rather hear that than you know, the maybe, so, so uh, it's, it's a great way to get into the listening mode, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think it's a great, a great way to start. So, experiments. I, Love this because I'm a huge advocate that, and this is a problem again for some salespeople is they have their eye on the prize, right? The big, the big number, and right. you know there's lots of ways to get to a big number. Oftentimes the best way is to, is to start very small and work your way up to the big number, uh, and you find by doing the experimenting that you're talking about, if you start relatively small with prospects, you know, a small engagement, small relationship to start, then you get a chance to learn. 
right? Because they start integrating it into their processes, your solution into their processes, and you get this this evidence back that you talked about. Right. So it's you know I, helping an entrepreneur uh, one day in, in Wisconsin, and I asked him, you know, what do you what what do you need most? And he said a thousand customers. And I said, how many do you have? And he said zero. And I said, you don't need a thousand. You need one. And and so it, it's exactly what you're saying is that you, you when you're trying to learn, you can't learn a hundred at a time. You can't learn a thousand at a time. You really have to go back. And again, it's ideally if you have existing customers, it's your early adopters. And you really have to narrow down and try to figure out what's the value that I can create for our one and then for a handful and then with larger groups before you start to figure out if there's a you know a larger play here um and so the idea around the experiments is exactly that is that you're 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 going back down to you know the small numbers of of clients what is my riskiest assumption so the process that we run clients through is really around brainstorming what has to be true from the client's perspective for my solution to fix their problem and what is known and what is unknown. You don't really have to run experiments on the known if there's analogies in the market already. Mm -hmm. In other words, Mm -hmm. there's other products, competitors, your own products, knowledge inside the company that makes things known. You don't have to run experiments. That's execution territory. But what is unknown? What are we assuming about the customer's environment that it will allow the solution to work? And so, you know, our process, we go through, we, we prioritize those, we get to the riskiest assumption. And the riskiest assumption was, one is, if this is not true, this solution will not work for my client. And now I can try to run what we call an experiment. If I do X, this customer will behave in way Z, and I'm going to measure Z. And I'm going to put a stake in the ground that says 10 customers are going to behave this way. And I'm going to go talk to 15 and see what the percentage is. Um, and so that everything we're talking about there in that unknown section is hypothesis driven. We put a stake in the ground because it's the only way that we can get a feeling after we run the experiment whether we were successful or not. Um, if, if one just you know, kind of goes out and throws stuff against the wall and tries to feel how things are going, typically the last last call that you did on a client, you know, it sort of affects how you feel about the whole day. Sure. So, sure. No, absolutely. People are that way. Natural yeah. human nature, right? Right. And so put a stake in the ground. This is the, I'm going to go talk to 10, seven out of 10 are going to behave in, in this way that indicates whether my assumption is true or not true. And there I've got a set of evidence. It's evidence that I can share with other people. It's evidence I can share with marketing team, with the product team, with senior leaders, with managers that says, hey, this is something that we should look at. Here's an insight. Here, I understand why they behave the way they did because I asked them why. Um, so we've got this data and we have these insights and, and, and we should run some more experiments and expand that pool and try to figure out if there's something here, in fact, but I think we've got this insight that we can capitalize on. And I truly believe that the that the the companies that are the most successful are the ones that are that gain customer insights before competition and act quickly to capitalize on them. Right, and as you talk about in one of your pieces, is you know you want to think big but start small. Right. Yeah. And 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 this experiments and experiments and evidence this this loop that's the three E's I'll say is sort of a loop is leads to the. What you said, a uh, uh, learning organization, and that's—I mean, people tend to think about it being book learning, but we're talking about learning lessons. 
Right. It's, it's learning what works and, as opposed to simply executing on, on the way we've always done it or on the marketing that we, the way we've always done it. Or, uh, you know, we'll go after a new market segment and try to sell the same way as we sold to the old market segment. And, and if you execute while you're in the unknown, you're essentially saying, okay, I'm going to give this one shot. Whereas if you start smaller and iterate and running experiments, what you're going to say is, well, I have all of these loops that the more loops I get through, the closer I'm going to get to the final answer about what works. And, and so that's the idea of a continuously learning is separating out the known from the unknown, the known we know how to execute on it. We have a process that, determined, that has been determined and continues to be successful. So we execute on that. What is uncertainty? What is, where is uncertainty? What is, what is unknown? Now we have to tackle that with this iterative learning approach. Right. And when you think about that in a sales context, that may seem a little daunting because, again, I've got quota to make. How can I afford to go do these experiments? And depending on the fear, especially in a you know, more complex B2B product, you really don't have an alternative. I mean, otherwise, you're really rolling the dice in a big-time way that, that is so binary. And so why, why put yourself in a position where what you're doing, the outcome is you know, going to be a one or a zero? Right. And, and then I think that that is what the large enterprises are seeing. And, and they spend 10, 20, 30, $40 million rolling out a new product initiative. And wow, the assumptions that are baked into that are really extraordinary. Not only, you know, are we solving a real problem? Did we build the right features? You know, are we using the right messaging? Is it even the right market segment? Do we know how to sell to these people? I mean, there's all these assumptions baked into it. And, and, and somehow it should be no surprise that that $40 million gets wasted on a failed product. And so, again, it's not to pin anything on one group marketing, sales, product. It's that everybody has all of these assumptions and we need this process-oriented way for us to validate and invalidate the incorrect assumptions so we can get to the right, the right hypothesis. And so how do you, so our last question on this sort of front is, how do you keep this going when you begin to scale? You know, let's say you're an entrepreneurial organization, you start small, you've got a certain number of salespeople. It's, yeah, it's, how do you resist the temptation for process to sort of overwhelm this, this uh, innovation? Yeah, it, it, it depends on stages in the companies, and there's a variety of ways of doing it. So in my company, I'm trying to scale. I typically, what we try to do is we go into the unknown, we run some experiments, we have somebody who's in charge of running the experiments and generating the evidence. And as they learn, what they're doing is putting together the process of execution um, within that domain. And as the process of execution is determined, we give that to people that are hired specifically because of their skill set or their seniority or their experience or whatever. Their skill set is, is experiment. I mean, is execution. Right. And so – what we're trying to, we believe it's mostly sort of personality based. The people that are entrepreneurial and feel comfortable not knowing and feel comfortable in chaos, and there's people that want to know how to execute, give me my process, and I'm going to go and, you know, knock this out of the park. And so we separate those two elements those that are in learning mode, and that's usually led by. My, by me and or my co founder and, and, uh, and specific salespeople that also are. I, you know, what was called in the past the Renaissance salesperson. Right. You know, actually, I think that's coming back. Actually, okay, awesome. And so there's a Renaissance that, of that term, right? <laughs> so those people that are comfortable about it's not known, and I'm the one that's responsible developing the process of known, and then you know, and then passing that over to the executions arm. 
Yeah, I mean, I was. I remember one startup I worked at. I was brought in as as we were starting a new vision. I was brought in as head of that division, and and the CEO said uh, we had no products, and the the other division had some technology. Said, do whatever you want, as long as the customer pays for the development costs. There you go. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's the renaissance. That's 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 the cool stuff. But but that is you start experimenting. You start experimenting small, and I think for people listening is is what Brant just said is. You have to have people on your team who are those uh, people with a large tolerance of ambiguity, the people that are you know, the innovators willing to be a little more experimental to have the ability to develop this, this empathy and relationships with customers. And they're not necessarily experimenters, but you need both. Right. You know, I mean, I think the terminology, again, it's sort of a lexicon that we've created that describes how successful people have been doing it for ages. So certainly the first startup I was at uh, in the 90s, uh, you know, we we started out with a handful of customers, two or three. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot of customer, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, bespoke customization that was going on in order to get it to work inside of the environment. And so all of that is learning, right? What does the architecture need to be so we can continue to customize the front end? What does the back end need to be so it fits inside these enterprise financial services, IT? You know, boy, I mean, there was a lot to learn. And so you just took a handful of customers and that was the whole process. Nobody had coined the term lean startup yet or experiments. It was just the normal process for a company that was successful. You know, you had to have that mindset. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, you make the '90s seem so far away. <laughs> <laughs> it's some, day, some days it feels feels long time ago. For right. Sure. So uh, now we move into the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests, and uh, the first one is really a hypothetical scenario where you, Brant, have just been hired as VP of Sales at a company whose sales have stalled out, and CEO and board are anxious to get things back on track. And you know, Rome's not going to be built in a day, but a turnaround's got to start somewhere. So. What two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? First thing I would do is is uh, call all of my existing customers. So that would, or at least the, depending on the size, I would I, the, what we considered the key mm-hmm. customers, and then probably a subset of those that we don't consider key. So that would be job one. Job two is what I would want to put together is sort of a task force or a, you know, like a, a Navy SEAL squad for, for sales. And it would be a cross-functional team. I would want you know, a, sales, a salesperson, a marketing person, a product manager, and an engineer, and maybe like a, 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 a support person. And I would get you know, before I was hired, I would have gotten the commitment that I get to do this. Sure. But, but what we're going to do is take that team and we're going to work in a cross-functional way to figure out where the bottlenecks are, what is the problem inside our organization, how the customers are feeling. And we would start running experiments to, uh, to break through whatever the bottleneck is. So to me, inside any company, growth is what happens in between bottlenecks. And so... I, love I, want, I want a cross-functional team that's going to find the bottleneck and do whatever it takes to eliminate it. I love that. Great expression. Growth Thanks. is what happens between bottlenecks. Excellent. All right, I'm writing that down. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> so all right, some rapid-fire questions for you. You can give me one-word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. The first one is when you, Brant, are outselling your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Empathy. 
I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Who's your sales role model? Wow, great, great question. I actually, you know, uh, probably uh, Janice Pompanato, uh, who was my boss for a while at a, at a startup I worked at, Wild Packets, and then uh, I, I sort of elevated up to VP of Marketing and Biz Dev and Product Management. Um, but I think that she taught me a lot of, when I was younger, taught me a, a lot of the basics of, of selling. Excellent. like that. All right. Besides your own, one book every salesperson should read. Uh, lean startup. That is yours. Oh no, uh, right, that's lean, Eric Rees. That's right. Yeah, did I cheat? Um, I could go for another one. Um, sure, go for another one. <laughs> uh, um, boy, this one's kind of heavy, but maybe Black Swan. Oh, interesting. Why? I it, to me, it just teaches the fallacy of a lot of our modern thinking when it comes to assumptions and statistics and. Uh, y- you know, the, the whole thing that we were talking about earlier about starting small, mm-hmm. the biggest objection I get to that is like, well, but that's not statistically significant. And I really think it was Nicholas Taleb that, that taught me in The Black Swan how to respond to that, which is, well, that's because we're not going after a random audience. And so you put a bell curve only on top of a random, random population when you're going out and trying to develop or sell a new product or service, you don't want one out of a hundred with a standard deviation of whatever. What you want is nine out of 10 saying, yeah, you've nailed it. So, so it's, again, it's not about the statistical significance. It's about finding the right market segment and then you should be blowing your numbers out. Yeah. That's also not the book the movie was based on. So, okay. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's not the ballet. It's, uh, Just uh, in case people are wondering. <laughs> that's a great point. <laughs> And last question for you: What what music's on your playlist these days? Local natives. Ah, oh, good. Uh, you know, I, I just went to uh, the High Sierra Music Festival, and uh, I was blown away by a number of of bands: um, Industrial Revelation, and uh, uh, boy. Andres, Andres Osborne. So uh, there's some ones that people maybe haven't thought of, but uh, yeah, some pretty amazing music. Yeah, okay. I've heard Local Natives. I haven't heard the other two. I'm writing those down as well. So, all right. Gosh, I've learned a lot today. Brant, thanks for being on the show. Uh, tell folks how they can find out more about you. Andy, you know, thank you for having me. Great, as always, uh, talking with you. So uh, I'm Brant at BrantCooper.com. Uh, my w- company's website is MovesTheNeedle.com, and we have lots of tools and free downloads that, and great blog posts that discuss a lot of what we were talking about today. Uh, and my book, The Lean Entrepreneur, is available at all the you know your favorite bookstores online and offline and uh, all of the social media at Brant Cooper. So uh, f- please feel free to uh, reach out to me. I, I'll, I respond to you know, everything I can. Excellent. Well, again, thanks again. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine. Listen in on your commute in the gym or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Brant Cooper, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. 
If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.